All right. We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul here. If you want to holler at us, we're at Twitter at polytheorypod. Uh, if you want to email us, our email is and.um.otherstuff at gmail.com. And if you want to whisper sweet nothings into our ear, it's patreon.com backslash polytheory and um, other stuff. Today we are wrapping up, hopefully, the Wendy Brown article called Neoliberalism, Neoconservatism, and De-Democratization. We are on the section called The Supplement of Religion. And, Paul, do you want to take her away? Would be pleased to. All right. Well, once again, thanks for joining us, folks. And let's get started. So, um, all right. Uh, supplement of Religion. If the de-democratizing effects of neoliberalism, its devaluation of political autonomy, depolitization of social problems, accommodation to heavy degrees of governance in everyday life, and legitimate statism, prepare, for, <clears throat> prepare the ground for the authoritarian features of neoconservative governance. Prepare. The political mobilization of religious discourse is an important fertilizer. This mobilization simultaneously contours a submissive, obedient citizen and organizes a post-9-11 wounded and defensive national patriotism. To be clear, I am not arguing that the God talk with which Bush woos a substantial piece of his constituency is part of the general agenda, platform, or vision of neoconservatism. Nor would I concur with those who insist that neoconservatism is relentlessly millenarian or inextricably bound up with the rapture Christians. There are too many secularists and Jews at the neoconservative helm for such claims to be viable. It's a really good point and something I guess I probably haven't considered too much. Uh, rather, my argument is that a religiously interpolated populace and an increasingly blurred line between religious and political culture and between theological and political discourse facilitates the reception of the de-democratizing forces of neoconservatism and neoliberalism. Uh, obviously, super good points uh, and uh, a train that didn't stop rolling. Yeah, it's it's been chugging right along. Yeah, still very healthy. What is frequently identified today as the late modern eruption of the theological and the political is a matter for another essay. But we have already glimpsed one aspect of it in the openly moral quality of neoconservative statism. Carl Schmitt, drawing on the French jurist Maurice Haru, uh, French is uh, one of my many weak points, so sorry, Maurice, uh, affirmatively theorizes this quality in his little red work, Three Types of Juristic Thought. Here, the status figured as providing not only order and unity, but also the guiding idea for a human community. Indeed, it is this guiding idea, and not naked power alone, that Schmidt understands as producing the order and unity of the nation-state. Executive power stands for the being of the state insofar as it represents state unity through this idea. And this unity, in turn, bounds state authority. Important. Uh, such an account of the state and executive power, which could not be further from the classical liberal account, but is too Catholic to be Hobbesian and affirms too contingent a noted notion of guiding idea to be Hegelian, would seem as critical in understanding the neocon model of politics as Schmidt's more routinely cited decisionism and friend-enemy distinction. Neoconservative governance models, models state authority on church authority, a pastoral relation of the state to its flock. Oh, God. Stuff that like I should have known, but like when I read it, it's like, man, that's 
good <laughs> a pastoral relation of the state to its flock. I mean, that is, I've never really thought about it, but that is kind of how they want government to operate. Um, and a concern with unified rather than balanced or checked state power, uh, even to the sense that they want you to like, you know, one of the things that's always really bugged me uh, about Christian missionary work um, and I, I can't say this is a blanket statement, but I know the majority of it involves the people receiving the help being, um, you know, baptized or, um, and, you know, accepting Jesus into their heart or whatnot. Um, and that is kind of what conservatives want American citizens to do as well. Like, you don't just get to be an American citizen. You don't just get our help. You have to follow all of the moral guidelines that we're putting in place. Uh, we want you to come here and be religious and have a family and not be gay and not, you know. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a similar concept, or maybe I'm stretching. Yeah, but, no, uh, no, for sure. I agree. This model acquires purchase and political culture shaped by the late modern uh, decontainment of religion consequent to waning nation-state sovereignty. A sovereignty originally designed in part precisely to contain and subtend both economic and religious power. His state, sovereign, <laughs> his state sovereignty <clears throat> uh, weakens these forces surge back into public and political life. Put slightly differently, after several centuries of formal, though always incomplete separation of religious and political discourse, attained through state sovereignty and through privatization of religion through doctrines of secularism and tolerance, and also secured through Christianity's easy hegemony in the West. These containment strategies are faltering. One consequence is the deprivatization of religious claims in general, and, within the United States, an increasingly overt mixing of Christianity into political discourse and debate. And I guess what might be weird here for me is I don't really have the memory of Christianity not being meshed into a huge amount of political discourse and, discourse and debate. You know, like my whole life, it was a huge push with the, uh, or my whole cognizant life, uh, was a huge push with the uh, stopping gay marriage, was just super religiously funded. Um, maybe you could make an argument that it wasn't, but I just have a feeling we never would have been as terrible to Islamic folks, uh, if it wasn't for, you know, the, the rivalry between the two religions. And then, I, I mean, there's countless things. I'm not going to waste the whole podcast. Just to wrap it up, this adds a further Philip. I don't know what that means. Could you imagine if we had to do this podcast and I had to just like have an actual dictionary? That I, I know, I know, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's a seven-hour podcast every time. Something which acts as a stimulus or boost to an activity. Okay. Okay. A provide a fill-up to sales. Okay, that's fine. This adds a further fill-up, which is funny, is that it kind of sounds like the word fill-up, which would also yep. boost things, yeah. but that's not what it is. Okay. This adds a further fill-up to the forces of de-democratization we have been considering, especially given the anti-democratic characteristics of contemporary Christian fundamentalism in the United States. Uh, and also, with the dictionary stuff, if we ever do start making YouTube videos, we'll use a dictionary to look it up to make sure we hit those length times. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Essential <laughs> length times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, what you were saying, I, although uh, I don't remember it happening, um, I do know um, from uh, reading a little bit and watching um, uh, all, a few documentaries, like that, that Reagan documentary, that it was like during um, Reagan's campaign that the conservative Christian uh, right first uh, really came out of the, of the shadows the and, and became uh, political. You know. And uh, yeah, because I know, 
you know, I, I can't remember the name of the documentary. Sorry, it was a good one. But it was a documentary on kind of evangelicals getting into the White House. And uh, one of the things that stood out to me was how much of a shock it was. I think it was Eisenhower let a prayer happen Mm. uh, in the White House, and it was such a big deal. Uh, And to think, and you know, and then obviously, to a different extent, more of more bigotry than religion, how up in arms everybody was over Kennedy's Catholicism. You know, now it's just like... We uh, have always been a Christian nation. Of course, we're going to be against abortions. Of course, we're going to be against, uh, you know, any brown people because they're not the same color as Jesus. All that yeah. good stuff. Totally. <laughs> just, totally. So, perfect. Far from considering this irritation of Christianity closely or comprehensively, I want only to identify select features of its effects on public discourse that bear on the problem at hand. First, most religious truths, but especially those deriving from the New Testament, are relentlessly tethered to the declarative modality of truth. God said, let there be light, and there was light, was surely among the earliest and most dramatic instances of the power of performative speech. The original recognition that a saying can be a doing and a making, that an utterance can bring its truth into being and thus literally and remake reality. Today, this kind of truth would seem to fill a vacuum in a radically disenchanted world, uh, one particularly short on meaning, tru- meaningful truths and adherence to practices of truth, even to valuations of truth, a phenomenon hardly originating with neoliberalism, but unquestionably accelerated by it. The declaration of what is true, right, and good, without any necessary reference to fact... I've never seen that word, but I assume it's facticity? Okay, to facticity... And I'm just going to guess the definition on that one. Yeah, if that yeah, doesn't have too. to do with like being factual, Fact. then... Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Fucking I'm English. Done. Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, to facticity has become a well-known neoconservative modality of political truth. It is characteristic of Bush's accounts of the war in Iraq, generally pronounced to be going swimmingly or at least making progress when the opposite is patently evident. And it is characteristic as well of neocon depictions of marriage as having had a single set of characteristics since time immemorial, in quotes, and of tax schemes said to help the working or middle classes that patently favor the rich. The rhetorical power of a declarative rather than reasoned or argued truth is uh, is buttressed by the neocon defense of truth and moral certainty against what what is targeted as the epistemological and moral relativi- relativism of the opposition. Since neoconservatism makes moral political fetishes of truth, consistency, and moral cer- certitude in this way, the declarative truths have more purchase than they otherwise might. Moreover, this modality of truth articulates with another popular neocon truth modality, truth from the gut, quote-unquote. Which, sorry to interrupt, which is just like, almost seems to be the conservative mode of debate exclusively these days. Like, well, I looked out my door and saw snow, so there's no climate change or 
like I just feel like immigrants are making things worse or you know I mean like they don't ever have data or statistics um, and not that it's just the right that's guilty of that um, I mean like a decent example right now would be uh, I think it's a popular mode on both sides to talk about uh, the crisis at the border um, but statistics clearly show that we're far from anything resembling a crisis, you know. Yeah. Um, but from the gut, from the pictures we see from CNN, and just from that overall feeling, there must be a crisis at the right. Yeah, totally. Uh, Sorry. No, you're good. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, truth from the gut, which corresponds with the personal moment of conversion in evangelicalism. Here, truth derives from inner conviction or certainty that no amount of facticity or argument can counter. Though truth issues from theological sovereignty in the first modality and from a place kindred to the soul in the second, the two forms share not only God's voice, but also a common indifference and imperviousness to interrogation, deliberation, and facts. When such indifference or even hostility becomes a political norm, both intellectual contestation and political accountability are dramatically devalued, often to the point of being rendered disloyal or treacherous. Declarative and revelatory truths are but one site of fundamentalist Christianity's facilitation of a neoconservative political order. Christian fundamentalism also makes a virtue of submission to, to this truth and to the authority that speaks or wields it. It is anti-democratic and anti-intellectual insofar as it devalues not merely facts but also deliberative autonomy and deliber deliberation themselves. This truth-authority submission relation is further supplanted by valorizing the fealty that binds subject to God and religious community. The basis of religious belonging rests in this combination of belief, submission, and fealty. Again, the combination of submission and fealty toward a state-declared truth is exactly the structure of the particular form of patriotism promulgated by neocons. I really liked that all of that. That's so yeah. on point, and I hadn't really thought about uh, maybe maybe I had in the past, but it's been a long time since I've thought about um, how important like submissiveness is to uh, to religion. Yeah, and I, even just thinking about it as being to like our form of patriotism. I have some German neighbors who uh, are German citizens, but uh, one is an engineer that works for an automotive firm out here that is. Uh, also German in nature, um, but, uh, you know, they have work visas over here. They went back to Germany for a visit um, and then uh, were not allowed to return to America until Germany thought it was safe for their citizens, which I guess is somewhat of a submissive thing. But the whole thing is that, like, when I was in Germany, patriotism felt way more about taking care of your country and being proud in your cities and, and that sort of thing, like a collective, like, let's make this place as good as we can. Um, whereas it feels like a lot of the people with the biggest flags uh, in America will very much uh, 
correlate patriotism to what you agree with with America, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you think America did bad things? Well, you can't be patriotic. You should just understand that it always had the best intentions at heart. If you don't, you know, it's that kind of stuff. It's a much different. um, And I, yeah, I'd never made that correlation to um, that submissiveness and that kind of fealty, dogmatic fealty to everything God does is correct. uh, Everything the U.S. does is correct. Um, kind of shit so yeah damn because uh, uh, oftentimes those people um with the big flags do not seem very um submissive you know no. they are to god i guess they are know? to god and they are to like their set of beliefs do you know what i'm saying like they might want you submit to their beliefs but it's only because they are so submissive to to those beliefs themselves if that makes sense like um you know a christian might not submit to you in believing that their beliefs are somewhat uh, illogical or contradictory in points, um, but they are very submissive to the concept of God. You know what I'm saying? If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. But I'm sorry. Sorry. No, 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 no. You're good. Yeah, I I totally agree. Now add inequality. Whatever egalitarianism is derivable from certain Christian traditions, in contemporary Christian fundamentalism, the relationship of God and his subjects and the phenomenon of the church hierarchy itself legitimates inequality as natural, good, and permanent. That is, even if we are all equal in the eyes of God, there is not only authority, but also legitimate hierarchy in Christian fundamentalism. When this sensibility infiltrates what is left of public culture, when the pastoral model becomes the political model, inequality, not merely submissiveness towards authority, but also legitimate uh, stratification and subordination, takes shape as a political norm rather than a political challenge. Political challenge. The combination, and that's, uh, I just thought that was so, um, uh, so important. And it's an important distinction because oftentimes when you talk about Christianity, uh, you know, there, there have been um, good groups of Christians in the past and today. And by good, I mean those that, like she says, promote egalitarianism. But when we're talking about Christian fundamentalism uh, and like evangelicalism in the U.S., we are not talking about those groups. Right. That's so. when Republican Jesus comes into play. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. I've probably talked about it 10 times since it's my favorite meme, but it's uh, kind of like uh, when that concept of like Jesus going to cure the lepers and then being like, I can cure you, but I'm going to need proof of insurance or proof yeah. of payment first. Yep. Or like, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, I am not a practicing Christian. Uh, I was raised that way, but I have read the Bible uh, twice, once for religious reasons and once for uh educational reasons and um you know i i just really get this feeling that if christianity followed what jesus said they would be a group of like really good people um not that the bible is like some clear-cut uh work of you know uh moral superiority or anything there's some real disgusting shit in both the old especially the old but also the new testament but i mean like jesus's whole message the entire time was anti-greed anti-bigotry or discrimination, uh, anti, um, you know, uh, not anti-selfishness, which I guess falls into greed. But I mean, it's like, and then you look at the modern Republican Party, the party of American Christianity, and it's the complete opposite in every single regard. Um, And that's just a thing that, you know, I've brought up multiple times to practicing Christians. And, uh, 
they the resounding thing is telling me that I didn't understand the message of the Bible. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, okay. Yeah, but go. I guess either did Jesus. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, the combination of submissiveness toward a declared truth, legitimate inequality, and fealty that seeps from religious to political rationality transforms the conditions of legitimation for political power to produce subjects whose submission submission and loyalty are constitutive of the theological configuration of state power sketched in schmidt's work on juristic thought these religious elements supply ingredients for a strong and continuous exercise of executive power that cannot be extracted from secular democratic principles when christian religious culture bleeds into political culture and when executive power robes itself in religious purpose such as the mission to conserve conserve marriage as a heterosexual institution to preserve quote unborn life or to quote free the unfree world executive power obtains a pre a prerogative i've never seen that word a prerogative prerogative yeah i I don't don't know what that yeah i I mean i can guess at it but that's one where it's a little prerogative a right or privilege exclusive to a particular individual or class so okay kind of like prerogative okay cool sorry i just never seen that word yeah me neither executive power obtains prerogative and legitimacy not uh routinely available to liberal democratic states Indeed, a late modern theologically theologically oriented state resting on a religiously shaped public culture can draw upon sources of power and legi- and legitimacy kept at bay by a strong church-state distinction and a strong distinction between religious and political nationalities. One small icon of contemporary American patriotism provides an instance of this de-democratization via a religious modality of authority. Those uh, ubiquitous uh, yellow ribbon magnets often affix the hind end of SUVs and minivans that read support our troops um, with their strangely anonymous address and channeling of authority unlike many bumper stickers expressing a position or posing a question. These take the form of a command and also contain an implicit reprimand perhaps doubting that the reader does support the troops and certainly and certainly scolding those who do not insofar as the command itself is without content and is framed by an old-fashioned symbol of pious memoration uh, they also convey a position of sheer moral uh, rectitude it is hardly clear what's uh, what such support entails apart from not not supporting the troops or perhaps not not supporting the war in which the troops are fighting or not not supporting the president who ordered the troops into battle and what to make of the posting of such a command and reprimand in this prosaic place on the backs of generally outsized vehicles uh, faring occupants to various stations of daily life work school the kids' soccer practice them all. Yet the uh, countlessness of the message, along with its reprimand, its sentimental and depoliticized framing, and its prosaic location, 
perfectly emblematized the hollowness of absolute and non-deliberative submission to authority. The contentlessness is the content. The uh, vac. What is vacuity? I don't know what vacuity is. Uh, like the vacuum, like kind of like the uh, shallowness or like okay. emptiness. Okay. Like vacuous. Okay, yeah. The vacuity expresses the very lack of action or participation that is contemporary citizenship. The substitution of ordinary family and consumer life for democratic participation. And the disinvitation to deliberate about whether and how the war and the troops are to be regarded also corresponds to a res- uh, resolute even patriotic refusal to think or desire for others to think, let alone think differently. Moreover, the command, you too should submit, is in the deepest way religious and anti-democratic, an indication that that something of the Schmidian theological state may indeed be upon us. Well, after reading that, from now on when I see those support our troops things, I'll just interpret it as... We're trying to end this war as quickly as possible to make sure that these people can be near their families. Right. Uh, is what I'm going to just assume they all mean, since there's no further instruction. I'd never thought about those that way. It's, um, I'm just glad, yeah. Uh, I'm glad we're doing this because it is constantly opening my eyes um, up to, uh, to kind of subtle uh, social movements that, maybe not movements, but social cues that I just don't think about but are, are clearly deviant. Um, with with pretty negative uh, intentions, yeah, and 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 very impactful. Yes, like obscenely, like yeah. I mean, it's yeah. Uh, the support for the troops is. Um, I I don't want to sound too negative, but there's a difference between supporting the troops and supporting what the troops are doing, and I I don't think that's a distinction that you're allowed to comfortably make um, in America uh, right now right. because of that kind of shit. So yeah, totally. All right, let's wrap her up. Uh, If this is what Americans face today, it is not only because the current president links state purposes with God's purposes, but also because the exercise of executive power rests on pacified and neutered citizenry in which a combination of religious and neoliberal discourses have supplemented liberal democratic ones. Uh, And that sentence is really, it sticks out to me a lot because like, it's so true that Trump was clearly never religious, but all he had to do was pantomime holding Bibles upside down and shit. Um, and that's that's all he had to do to have all of his supporters be like, yeah, no, he's a good man of God. You know, there's no like reality behind it. Um, the strand of state power exploits and borrows from a religious structure of authority for its own, makes use of the religious ant- antipathy uh, to democracy for its own, and this, among other things, to launch an imperial endeavor that, through the use of civilizational discourse, identifies the state with West and Christianity against what are figured as stateless fundamentalist barbarians. So goddamn true. Uh, in this way, the populism of evangelical Christianity can be mobilized for state authority and power, thus converting it to right-wing political populism. Oh my god, that was prophetic. Um, however, this would not be possible if not for the weakening of liberal democratic institutions and democratic culture already achieved by neoliberal rationality. Jesus. Uh, neoconservatism's authoritarianism takes root here, quite possibly to a greater degree that neocons would wish. This is kind of like Wendy Brown Nostradamus. 
Um, I do not think the neocons are fascists, nor am I convinced that the language, uh, I don't know if I'm convinced of that, <laughs> nor am I convinced that the language of fascism is entirely apt for grasping or diagnosing our current predicament. But neoconservatism does valorize power and statism, and when those energies are combined with the moralism and market ethos, and when a public is molded by the combination of these energies and rationalities, a fiercely anti-democratic political culture results. This is a culture disinclined to restrain either statism or corporate power, and above all, one that literally comes to resent and even attack the classic principles and requirements of constitutional democracy. Jesus Christ. Um, very true. Just, mm -hmm. I, yeah. yep. I mean, turn on any news channel. Um, this attack comes at a time when globalized market forces and neoliberal political rationality are already threatening liberal democratic constitutionalism with obsolescence. Thus, as the principle, which is fine, but it just sucks where they're going with it. Uh, thus, as the principles are attacked from one direction, the institutions are undermined from another, at which point the left, without an independent vision of its own, often finds itself in the peculiar position of being little more than an advocate for a declining liberal democracy. Uh, so my true. only issue there would be using the word the left. <laughs> like, right. uh, I get what she's saying, but uh, I just cringe well, at thinking and keeping, about it. Keep in mind when she was writing this too. Yeah, like that's even true. even the broader left, at least in the U.S., like all like the majority of like the most radical uh, of the left. Well, not the most radical, but so much of the left, like the progressive left, then was just like, can we please not do Iraq? You know, right. like they were so yeah. on their heels that all they that's could true. do was be like, please don't do Iraq. You know. Yeah. Um, no, that's true. Yeah. And it just feels like you know. I mean, like I would say. And I can't speak as much to the time when this was written because I was in high school or, or right out of high school. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, like even to this day, lots of people pretend that uh, the left that I would consider myself a part of don't have an independent vision. But it's like, dude, we do have a vision. It's just at every level we're told it's absurd, you know, yeah. <laughs> or, like, or uh, it's not even entertained, you know, um, like it's not like um Rachel Maddow is telling us that we're absurd. Like we're just not part of the yeah, conversation. Not even relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, totally. uh, in the absence of a substantive left vision, an absence that inevitably breeds a politics of reaction, the neoconservative moral agenda and contempt for civil rights would seem to push many liberals and leftists either into a competing moralism or into repulsing all moral claims in the public and the social with civil libertarianism and a hollow secularism. Damn. Um, similarly, the neoliberal... Excuse me. Um, get into that John Mulaney age where I have to burp while I talk. Um, similarly, the neoliberal dismantling of public provisions and services often pushes liberals and leftists into an anachronistic welfare statism. However understandable, these responses take inadequate measure of contemporary configurations of power and sidestep what may be the most critical question for radical Democrats and social egalitarians today, which is not the question of how best to defend civil liberties, secularism, or welfare statism, but whether the democratic dream, the rule of the demos for the demos, is finished. Is that shorthand for Democrats? Demos? Uh, I think the demos being like... Uh, Demographics? I yeah, no that's what I was thinking. But I don't know. We've talked about that before. We talked about that last episode. Oh, tight. Yeah. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> well, I've always been known for my memory. 
How might the extraordinary powers that construct and organize collective life today be democratized? Are we really Democrats? Do we believe in or want popular power anymore? Do we believe the demos can or should govern itself, sharing as much as possible the various political, social, and economic powers that currently govern it? If not, what is the significance of this faltering belief for a left project? God, that reminds me of Destiny just being like, well, we can't have the majority in charge. Um, and if we do still believe, how would renewed efforts to democratize power contest the forces and rival the lures of contemporary anti-democracy? I should, I'm going to reread that sentence a little more yeah. compactly. I didn't. <laughs> and if we do still believe, how would renewed efforts to democratize power contest the forces and rival the lures of contemporary anti-democracy? Damn. Damn. Boom. Wendy Damn. Brown. Wendy Brown, man. Uh, you know, and this is just, for me, this article was A, amazing. Unbelievable choice, Mike. Um, but two, it's just, you know, the whole point of this podcast was to kind of demonstrate uh, our attempt at learning um, these sort of things. Um, and I, I just want to point out that, you know, inherently, maybe your first concept might be, well, wait, this is a 15-year-old article. Um and uh, I think it's important to, you know, have a, a well-rounded uh, understanding of not only what's happening today, not only what happened 15 years ago, um, but, you know, like things like the racial contract, making sure we understand what happened a few hundred years ago, um, because none of this lives in a vacuum. It is all uh, a result of something else. Um, and I, for one, learned so much or was able to connect so many things um, that weren't connecting in my head because of this article. Um, and, and I hope that that's, uh, uh, applies to other people as well. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, she's really strong and, yeah. uh, or that, at least that article is really strong and, uh, you're right. It's important to see what was going on in different historical moments and see how those moments have, um, influenced, um, uh, the present, you know, um, but next time, we are um, starting a new project. We're very excited about it, and uh, we hope and think that you will be too. Yes. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks.